If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Tonight on the readout. I was in the vicinity of a conversation where I overheard the president say something to the effect of, you know, I, I don't effing care that they have weapons. They're not here to hurt me. Take the effing mags away. Let my people in. They can march to the Capitol from here. Stunning testimony that Donald Trump not only knew that January 6th was likely to turn violent and did nothing to stop it, he fully intended to lead his armed MAGA mob into the Capitol. To paraphrase our esteemed NBC presidential historian Michael Beschloss, never before have we heard testimony this shocking about a president of the United States. And we begin tonight with Donald Trump's determination to personally lead the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th to hang on to power, no matter the cost. This is what was revealed in bombshell testimony by Cassidy Hutchinson, a former top aide to Trump chief of staff Mark Meadows. It was made clear that Trump knew the dangers that existed on the day of the insurrection. Hutchinson testified that she heard the names of the extremist groups, the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys brought up during planning meetings for the January 6th rally, quote, when Mr. Giuliani would be around. And she said the Justice Department's National Security Division warned that some MAGA supporters were going to try to, quote, occupy federal buildings and invade the Capitol building. Most alarming, Trump was made aware the very morning of January 6th that many of those at his rally were carrying an array of dangerous weapons. I remember Tony mentioning knives, guns in the form of pistols and rifles, um, bear spray, body armor, spears and flagpoles. And despite having all that information. Trump took to the stage on the ellipse and directed his armed, enraged and dangerous supporters to join him at the Capitol to fight for him. We're going to have to fight much harder. And after this, we're going to walk down and I'll be there with you. And we're going to walk down to the Capitol. And we're going to cheer on our brave senators and congressmen and women. And we're probably not going to be cheering so much for some of them. Because you'll never take back our country with weakness. Now, it wasn't completely clear until today that he meant it, not as hyperbole or as a rhetorical flourish, but as the plan. He was actually planning to go with them to the Capitol that day and possibly make some grand dramatic presentation, either outside the Capitol or even inside the House chamber, Mussolini style even though he was told by practically everyone in the White House that it was a dangerous idea. Hutchinson testified about the repeated warnings from White House counsel Pat Cipollone, including on the morning of January 6th, not to join the MAGA mob. Mr. Cipollone said something to the effect of, please make sure we don't go up to the Capitol, Cassidy. Keep in touch with me. We're going to get charged with every crime imaginable if we make that movement happen. 
The potential legal jeopardy would not deter Trump in what he thought was going to be his moment of glory. After he finished his speech and was brought back to his motorcade, he was informed that he, in fact, was headed back to the White House and not to the Capitol. That's when Trump literally tried to take the matter into his own hands. The president said something to the effect of, I'm the effing president. Take me up to the Capitol now. To which Bobby responded, sir, we have to go back to the West Wing. The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engel grabbed his arm, said, sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol. Mr. Trump then used his free hand to lunge towards Bobby Engel. And Mr. when Mr. Renato had recounted this story to me, he had motioned towards his clavicles. Now, this is where I confess that I cannot recall ever having heard another example of a president trying to physically hijack his own motorcade. I mean, have you as anyone? But you have to remember, this day was long in the making, and Trump wanted to savor every moment. It was Trump himself who had invited everyone to Washington the previous December, saying it was going to be wild. We've already heard from Trump's former White House advisor, Steve Bannon, making clear that what was to come on the day, what was to come on the day before January 6th. All hell is going to break loose tomorrow. Just understand this. All hell is going to break loose tomorrow. It's going to be moving. It's going to be quick. All hell is going to break loose. And today we learned that Trump's intention to be at the Capitol was not some spur of the moment decision. Hutchinson described a conversation she had with Rudy Giuliani on January 2nd. As Mr. Giuliani and I were walking to his vehicles that evening, he looked at me and said something to the effect of, Cass, are you excited for the 6th? It's going to be a great day. We're going to the Capitol. It's going to be great. The president's going to be there. He's going to look powerful. He's, he's going to be with the members. He's going to be with the senators. Talk to the chief about it. Talk to the chief about it. He knows about it. And when she relayed that conversation to her now former boss, Mark Meadows seemed to know what lay ahead on January 6th. He didn't look up from his phone and said something to the effect of, there's a lot going on, Cass, but I don't know. Things might get real, real bad on January 6th. Joining me now, a member of the January 6th Select Committee, Congressman Jamie Raskin of Maryland. Congressman, thank you for being here. Um, I think this hearing was as promised. It was as dramatic as promised. Uh, But I want to walk through a couple of things. Um, One of the things that this made me want to, one of the people this hearing made me want to hear from, um, and Liz Cheney has said it over and over, is Pat Cipollone. Um, He is someone who seemed to be at the center of much of this, seemed to be in the room along with Ms. Hutchinson for much of this, and also on the right side of of history here in saying, do not do any of this. What is the progress of the committee of getting Pat Cipollone to testify? Well, the committee is obviously very interested in hearing from uh, Mr. Cipollone, and I uh, can't make any report about the, the details of any negotiations that may or may not be taking place. Um, but I will say that today was indeed um, a, a huge breakthrough in terms of our understanding of events, because uh, Cassidy Hutchison, who displayed a lot of courage and a lot of character coming before the committee today, uh, demolished any pretense 
that uh, the savage mob violence that came out of that crowd and that uh, eventuated in the storming of the Capitol somehow took uh, Donald Trump by surprise. I mean, he was perfectly aware that there were weapons out in that crowd and, according to her testimony, wanted to take down the mags, in other words, remove the metal detectors so the armed people could mix in with everybody else uh, in preparation for the march uh, up to the Capitol. And let me play—this is um, Cassie Hutchinson talking about a conversation between her then-boss, Mark Meadows, and Pat Cipollone about Trump literally not wanting to stop the violence. I remember Pat saying to him something to the effect of, the rioters have gotten to the Capitol, Mark. We need to go down and see the president now. And Mark looked up at him and said, he doesn't want to do anything, Pat. And Pat said something to the effect of, and very clearly <laughs> had said this to Mark, something to the effect of, Mark, something needs to be done or people are going to die and the blood's going to be on your effing hands. This is getting out of control. I'm going down there. You know, when you combine this testimony that Trump did not want the violence to stop, what you just said, that Trump heard that people were going through the magnetometers and people were catching knives and guns and other weapons, and that he insisted that the mags be taken away, that armed people be let in, and then his determination to, number one, allow those armed people to march to the Capitol, his seeming presupposition that they were going to go to the Capitol— and then his decision, his determination to also go to the Capitol and maybe do some dramatic presentation, maybe inside of the House chamber, is the contention at this point. I mean, I feel like you guys have gotten a lot further to connecting Donald Trump to the seditious conspiracy charges that we've seen against those armed people, at least the leaders of those two armed groups, the three groups, the three percenters and the Oath Keepers. Uh, I mean, the three percenters and the Proud Boys. Is that the contention here, that Donald Trump knew— that three percenters and Oath Keepers and Proud Boys specifically were going to try to occupy the House and that that was his plan? Well, nothing was advanced like that in the evidence today about those specific, about his knowledge of those specific groups. Um, but Hutchinson testified that um, for Donald Trump, it made no difference that these individuals were armed. He said, they're not going to harm me. They're not there to hurt him. So that was the key consideration. They were on his side, and he had no problem with them uh, blending into the rally and then being part of the march that he so desperately wanted to go on himself. And of course, you know, his speech was all about, like, we're going to fight like hell. Uh, otherwise, you know, you're not going to have a country anymore. And uh, there are very different rules when there's fraud involved and so on. Um, so, the, you know, there's a series of admonitions to the crowd to go and fight. And that was, you know, what was on his mind. And, the, you know, we, of course, have known that he didn't do anything to try to stop the crowd. But here we see him uh, actively trying to uh, cheer it on. And according to Hutchinson, um, you know, being disappointed that uh, armed individuals are being kept out of the crowd, at least momentarily, 
by the metal detectors. And a really quick question. What is the progress? I mean, we know that Mark Meadows has also refused to testify. His testimony would seem to be very important here. But there are other people who, in theory, could corroborate some of what we heard today. Um, you know, there, there is some NBC News reporting that sources maybe close to the Secret Service, we don't know if they're in the Secret Service, are disputing some of that really dramatic story about Donald Trump trying to lunge forward and take control of the beast, the presidential vehicle. Um, are there any plans from the committee to call corroborating witnesses? For instance, the Secret Service, the leader of the Secret Service, um, Bobby Engel. Um, is he on the witness, the witness list? Is there other testimony that we're going to hear that might corroborate some of those very specific details that at this point are hearsay? Well, I don't have any further details on that right now. I'll just say that I found her testimony 100 percent credible. Um, she would have no reason to make any of that up. Um, and the committee remains uh, determined to get all of the evidence we can from all of the material witnesses that are out there. So, you know, we'll continue to pursue all of the facts and all of the leads. One last question. We are out of time. Liz Cheney, at the end of this hearing, pointed out what sure did sound like witness tampering, uh, saying that people were being—there was outreach to some witnesses, um, saying, hey, as long as I continue to be a team player, they know I'm on the right team, I'm doing the right thing. Trump reads transcripts. He knows you're loyal. It sounds like mob talk. In your view, is there witness tampering or obstruction, criminal obstruction going on from Team Trump or maybe from the former president? Well, I don't know enough about the facts of any individual case, but I will tell you that uh, the committee is well aware that witness tampering is a federal offense. It is an offense in the District of Columbia. It's an offense in all of the states. And it's a very serious matter because it means someone is trying to interfere with the collection of the truth and the collection of facts. And the committee will not stand by and allow that to happen. And uh, we will be acting in a very strong way to oppose any kind of uh, witness tampering or other forms of obstruction of justice that we encounter. Would that include referrals to the Justice Department? Well, undoubtedly, if there is a substantial factual predicate uh, for obstruction of justice or witness tampering, we'll take uh, appropriate legal measures at that point. Congressman Jamie Raskin, thank you. Really appreciate your time. Um, and up next on the readout, the very serious legal jeopardy now facing Trump and company after today's testimony, which some are calling the smoking gun. The readout continues after this. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. 
That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. There were many discussions the morning of the 6th about the rhetoric of the speech that day. In my conversations with Mr. Hirschman, he had relayed that we would be foolish to include language that had been included at the president's request, which had lines along to the effect of fight for Trump, we're going to march to the Capitol, I'll be there with you, fight for me, fight for what we're doing, fight for the movement. For more on today's bombshell testimony and what it means for Trump's potential legal peril, I'm joined by Charles Coleman, Jr., a civil rights attorney and former prosecutor, Betsy Woodruff-Swan, national correspondent for Politico, and Glenn Kirshner, former federal prosecutor. I'm going to go in reverse order, Glenn. Um, There there were a lot of potential crimes spelled out to Cassidy Hutchinson, people telling her, if we do X, we're looking at crimes. Um, She was told that about the speech on the ellipse, saying things like, fight for me, knowing there was violence taking place, but also um, just Donald Trump's actions and even trying to go to the Capitol and physically be there. What crimes might those be? You know, Joe, I think this reinforces the earlier ruling that we all heard from the federal judge in California, David Carter, who decided by a preponderance of the evidence that Donald Trump, together with John Eastman, committed at least two federal felonies, one obstructing the official proceeding, the certification of Joe Biden's win, and the other, a conspiracy to defraud or commit offenses against the United States. I happen to think that there's now a third conspirator who would fit comfortably between Donald Trump and John Eastman in that finding, and that would be Mark Meadows based on some of what we learned. But I'll tell you, Joy, there was really a marquee line, one of the most incriminating things we've heard yet. That, um, that was disclosed in today's hearing, um, I would make it the centerpiece of a prosecution of Donald Trump. And that was after Trump was advised that the crowd was armed mm-hmm. with rifles and handguns and knives and brass knuckles. Um, he said, I don't care. Take down the effing metal detectors because they're not here to hurt me. In courtrooms around the country every day, Joy, jurors are told that they can infer um, what, you know, what that means. It obviously means Donald Trump believed they weren't there to hurt him. But what does, what can we infer from that? That he believed they were there to hurt the people at the Capitol who were certifying the win of his opponent. And he wanted to lead the armed insurrection. He went so far as to assault his own limo driver to try to force him down to the Capitol so he could lead the armed insurrection. That is some marquee incriminating evidence. Right. I mean, and Charles, you have his chief of staff who, look, if you want to know anything about a president, the person who knows the most is the chief of staff. He seems to be the marquee person that would know all the crimes that were committed because he was the one who was detached, staring at his phone, not responding to Cassie Hutchinson, which she would try to wake him up and get him to see what was happening. This is cut for um, for <laughs> my producers. This is one of the scenes as described by Cassidy Hutchinson of the way Mark Meadows was behaving that day. Mark was sitting on his couch and on his phone, which was something typical. I remember distinctly Mark not looking up from his phone. The writers are getting really close. Have you talked to the president? He said, no, he wants to be alone right now. 
still looking at his phone. Mark is still sitting on his phone. I remember like glancing and he's still sitting on his phone. Charles, are you in agreement that if you put together Donald Trump demanding the mags be taken away, demanding armed people be allowed to not only march to the Capitol, knowing they were armed, but also wanting to go with them and make some sort of presentation. And the guy who would know the most about him being completely detached and even maybe on the background telling him we're going to make an OTR, we're going to find a way to get you to the Capitol. It does seem to me that if there was going to be criminal liability, Mark Meadows would be the chief witness, maybe a hostile witness. Well, certainly, Joy, everything about what we learned today from this witness tells us that Mark Meadows was not surprised by any of the events on January 6th, that they had talked about it, that they had planned it, and that this was that this was what they were anticipating. And I think one of the reasons why Ms. Hutchinson's testimony was so valuable beyond how explosive it was is that it finally gave the committee a way to sort of pierce this notion of executive privilege that they've been dancing around with respect to Mark Meadows. Remember, a large part of why they did not go after Meadows more aggressively was because there was this murky line around executive privilege and what the case law said about how expansive it was. And so now you have a witness who doesn't have that privilege attached to her, who still is able to provide some context and information about what took place on that day. And what we learned today was simply astonishing. We have a very different view about how much President Trump knew about the fact that these people were armed and that they were armored in terms of the body armor that they were wearing. And yet and still, he made every effort possible through his rage, through his tyrannical attitude of just wanting to make sure that they had unfettered access to do exactly what it is that he knew that they would do on January 6th. And there's also some evidence, and Betsy, I'm going to go to you just on what the reaction is is, is to this um, the out, sort of out in Trump world, if, if, if you know, uh, and if you have reporting on that. Donald Trump also seemed to have cognizance that what these people were doing was criminal. Um, this is Cassidy Hutchinson talking about what Trump wanted to add to his speech. This is cut six for my producers of what he wanted to add to the speech he was reluctantly going to finally give on January 7th. There are several lines that didn't make it in there about prosecuting the rioters or calling them violent. He didn't want that in there. He wanted to put in there that he wanted to potentially pardon them. Um, and this is just with the increased emphasis of his mindset at the time, which was he didn't think that they did anything wrong. So he, he thought about wanting to pardon the people who were attacking the Capitol. Then he got people asking him for pardons. And according to Cassidy Hutchinson, Mo Brooks, Matt Gates, Andy Biggs, Congressman Andy Biggs, Congressman Louis Gohmert, Congressman Scott Perry, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, Mark Meadows and Rudy Giuliani were seeking pardon. So there was broad knowledge that criminality had taken place. You know, the, the Republican sort of Twitter, you know, official Twitterdom has tried to dismiss this testimony today as no biggie. But it seems like they all thought it was a biggie at the time. With, without question, there were a host of senior White House officials and powerful congressional Republicans who worried that they would or, in fact, did at least face the prospect of criminal prosecution because of what happened on January 6th. And remember, Cassidy Hutchinson worked in the in the White House's Office of Legislative Affairs before she became Mark Meadows' top deputy. She knew all these people. Part of her job was getting to know every single House Republican really closely. What do they want? What do they need? What makes them tick? That's what OLA staffers in any administration do. It's part of the gig. And because of that, she would have been very much aware, even in these final days, even after she was in the Office of Legislative Affairs role, of the way that these members were trying to exert pressure 
on the White House. And these members all would have known her too. She's somebody who, as I believe Cheney highlighted at the beginning of the hearing, was a familiar face on the Hill. Trump himself, of course, is distancing himself from her, saying that he doesn't really know who she is. Frankly, that's not really germane because she's never claimed to have a particularly close or intimate relationship with the former president. But there's no question that these Republican members of Congress are people who she got to know quite well. Now, some of the biggest pushback that we're seeing currently from Trump world is highlighting the reporting about potential pushback from uh, members of the Secret Service, which you asked Congressman Raskin about. That's important because it's very much gettable information from the committee. I've reported previously, the Secret Service has said they're making all their personnel available to the committee without subpoenas. They're laying all the cards on the table. Everybody who the committee wants to talk to, according to the Secret Service as an agency, they can talk to. So it should be pretty quick and easy for the panel to get Engel or Nato, the unnamed driver of the beast that day, all under oath discussing the actions as Hutchinson described them and discussing what happened. We also know the committee has already spoken to Engel and Ornato, but it's not clear if when they spoke to those two men, they were aware of what Hutchinson said about the conversation that she had with the two of them afterwards. So the short answer on that is Republicans are pushing back and there's a lot more. Uh, And I would love to hear what Ornato had to say. They've already spoken with him. And if that's one of those depositions that's on video, hopefully that's going to be played soon. But, you know, Glenn, Ms. Hutchinson spoke to the committee after switching attorneys. She had a very Trumpy, Trump-friendly attorney. Then she switched to a very Jeff Sessions world attorney. Um, and so, you know, that seemed to, it, it, I don't know if that made a difference, but she definitely is not being, you know, her, her, her lawyers don't come from Trump's inner, inner circle and their world. The people who are still deeply involved in MAGA are doing things like Mike Flynn. Let, let me play this for you, because this also to me was stunning. Uh, this is Mike Flynn, who used to head a key intelligence agency inside of the Department of Defense, pleading the fifth on some very basic questions about civics. Do you believe the violence on January 6th was justified morally? Take the fifth. You believe the violence on January 6th was justified legally? Fifth. General Flynn, do you believe in the peaceful transition of power in the United States of America? Can you imagine a member of the United States military not being able to answer whether or not they agree? They having to take the fifth on whether or not they believe in the peaceful transfer of power. I can't, Joy. And I took the same oath as General Flynn when I was an army jag back in the 80s prosecuting court martial cases. And let me say one thing about General Flynn. He should be restored to active duty and he should be court martialed for his crimes. There's a lawful mechanism by which you can restore a retired officer to active duty so he can be held accountable because, you know, this is beyond the pale. Something has to be done about General Flynn. Yeah, indeed. Our panel sticking around. There is still a lot to unpack from today's explosive testimony. We'll be right back. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. 
Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. Today's hearing brought up two familiar names, longtime Trump advisor Roger Stone and Trump lawyer John Eastman. As Cassidy Hutchinson testified, her former boss, Mark Meadows, planned to attend that infamous January 5th war room meeting at the Willard Hotel with Eastman, Rudy Giuliani and others. Hutchinson said she told Meadows that going was not a smart idea, so he opted to dial in instead. Now, these blockbuster hearings seem like a wild serial tale using fake electors and even violence to hand a presidential election to the loser. Maybe that's because you don't fully remember the 2000 election. During last week's hearing, the committee played this clip of Eastman addressing Georgia Republicans a month after the 2020 election. You could also do what the Florida legislature was prepared to do, which is to adopt a slate of electors yourself. I don't think it's just your authority to do that. But quite frankly, I think you have a duty to do that. What the Florida legislature was prepared to do. Now, inserting Florida into the mix in this most recent presidential election just seemed odd to me and kind of like a throwaway. I mean, Trump won that state, right? But it is a reminder of how some of the same characters from the 2000 election aftermath are back big time. Namely, Eastman and Stone, who effectively laid the groundwork for an almost identical scheme in Florida back in 2000, including the false claims of voter fraud. Stone used those claims to mass hundreds of operatives who descended on Miami-Dade County, staging the so-called Brooks Brothers riot, demanding an end to the statewide recount on George W. Bush's behalf. Stone orchestrated that threatening scene as a distraction to the legitimate statewide recount. A few days after that disturbance, Florida lawmakers held a hearing to discuss maybe appointing their own Bush electors, no matter how the count went, with testimony from none other than John Eastman. Here... The power delegated to you by Article 2, Section 1 is a plenary power. It knows no other appeal. I think it's important to keep that in mind as we go through these very technical statutory provisions. And we cannot view those congressional statutes as altering your plenary power that you have directly by the Constitution of the United States. Now, that, that plenary power stuff, that should sound familiar, given what former Vice President Mike Pence's counsel, Greg Jacob, and Arizona House Speaker Rusty Bowers testified that Eastman said to them about two key aspects of his scheme. You and I will mutually understand that the underlying legal theory of plenary vice presidential authority is what you have to have to get there. We would decertify the electors. And that that because we had plenary authority to do so. Back with me are Charles Coleman, Jr., Betsy Woodruff, Swan and Glenn Kirshner. And Charles, I'll start with you on this. I mean, when I heard that little snippet where he said what the Florida electors were prepared to do, it kind of stuck in my head because I, you know, still have trauma over the 2000 election. And remember this whole argument that there was a case being made 
to the Florida legislature, which is Republican controlled, that they should just put in their own electors. And I did not remember until look until someone, I think, put it out on social media that it was John Eastman who was making that exact same argument. What do you make of just the idea, the theoretical idea that Eastman updated his plan for Trump? Well, Joy, we've seen this movie before and we know how it ends. This is out of straight out of the Eastman playbook. He did it in Florida and he was prepared to do it again. The only thing that stopped this from taking place in Florida in 2000 was the fact that the Supreme Court got involved and they made a decision which stopped the process. Otherwise, we would have been looking at the Florida legislature doing exactly what we saw the the delegates attempt to do in this particular situation around January 6th, which would have been a nightmare. But there's a bigger takeaway that I need viewers to understand, Joy. And that bigger takeaway is when we dismiss these sort of fringe theories of people being kooks and being wackos and having very, very ridiculous and absurd takes on what it is that our government should be and is designed to do, it's not like they go away. They stay there and they grow and they fester. And we have not eliminated them by delegitimizing them. We don't just have to delegitimize them. We have to actually call them out. Ignoring them does not make them disappear. And I think that Eastman and what we're seeing here is a classic example of that. He did not go away. He just went back into his hole until it was a time that was profitable for him to come out, a time such as this. And now we have to deal with that on a bigger scale. So when we get into these conversations about these fringe theories, what seems to be absurd, they'll never work, they'll never be a big deal. We have to be very mindful that fringe theories ultimately become false equivalencies that then become theories that people latch onto, that then become problems that January 6th exemplifies. So we have to be mindful of how that happens. Absolutely. And Betsy, I mean, I think about the people who are at this this Willard, this infamous Willard Hotel meeting. I mean, it's it's Steve Bannon, the guy who said, you know, all hell is going to break loose on January 6th. It is John Eastman. It's Rudy Giuliani. And his buddy Bernard Carrick, who got pardoned for crimes, Boris Epstein, Trump's, um, you know, sort of uh, acolyte and other people, even Christina Bob from OAN. I mean, they, it's this group. But Roger Stone and Michael Flynn were also involved in these efforts, these same characters kind of coming back to it, what does feel like trying to rerun that old playbook. Certainly. And the cast of characters that materialized at the Willard is a really interesting mix, both of people who uh, certainly had notable roles in historic episodes in the past, as this, this video of Eastman I had not seen before highlights, but also people who very much are still part of Trump's inner circle. Boris Epstein, one of the folks who was at the Willard Hotel, works closely with former President Trump. He's not somebody who's been you know, marginalized or diminished whatsoever in the wake of January 6th. Rather, he plays an important role in President Trump's current, former President Trump's current circle of advisors. We would expect that if Trump does run again in 2024, Boris Epstein would very much be in the trenches with him, at least based on everything that I know right now. Bernie Carrick, of course, is also somebody whose testimony I think has flown under the radar, but who's brought really interesting information to the committee, particularly, as I reported a while back, testifying to the committee about the origins of that draft executive order that made its way into the White House that would have had Trump send the military to seize voting machines. That would have been just there aren't enough adjectives to describe what that would have been. It would have been absolutely astonishing. It's something that Bernie Carrick was able to really share detailed information about with the select committee. This is what the folks at the Willard Hotel were involved in. This is what they knew about. The fact that the White House chief of staff, according to his top deputy at the time, wanted to go there and then ultimately settled just for 
calling in tells you that there was more of a White House connection to this particular coterie of folks that we'd previously known. Yeah. And, and, you know, Glenn, and Eastman himself is this interesting character that is at the center of this, the sort of intellectualization of this coup, right? Creating sort of the, the memo for it. He's taken, he's gotten the interest of the FBI. Um, there's video here that was played, um, on Tucker Carlson's show last night as, um, he was, had his phone seized and he was very upset and was asking for the warrant, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I want to play you. There he is saying, give me the warrant, show me the warrant. He gets his phone taken. This is what he then said on Fox News about that seizure. There's no indication of uh, of, of any crime that this is connected to. Um, that's apparently in an attach in an affidavit, but the affidavit wasn't attached to the warrant. The Fourth Amendment's very clear here. Uh, when they search and seize your property, they have to give a particular description of the things to be seized. I'm an attorney. It's access to all my privileged communications with nearly 100 different clients. The very reason we have the Fourth Amendment is to prevent that kind of abuse. And yet that's what they're doing here. Well, if they arrested him and didn't read his Miranda rights, according to the Supreme Court, he couldn't sue them. So that's uh, thanks to his Supreme Court. But I mean, is he right about that? I mean, doesn't there have to be a warrant? To, they don't just seize your phone just because they feel like it. I mean, it, it, can he can it possibly be that there's no crime attached? Glenn. No, John Eastman can huff and puff all he wants, but a federal judge reviewed an affidavit in support of an application for a search warrant for John Eastman's phone. And that judge concluded that there was probable cause that there was crime right now to be found in John Eastman's phone. And I agree with Charles. We can't ignore the the kooks and the wackos who are lawyers often in positions of power. One, because they may have a more receptive audience at the Supreme Court now in the event they can bubble a challenge all the way up to the Supreme Court. And two, John Eastman seems like he has been angling for a lifetime achievement award as a criminal defendant because he has been determined to ignore the will of the American voters and just install a a president of his choice. And I hope that the chickens are about to come home to roost and John Eastman gets the criminal uh, charges that he so richly deserves. Yeah, we, we will see. We are watching the Justice Department with great interest. Let's just put it that way. Charles Coleman, Betsy Woodruff Swan, Glenn Kirshner, thank you all very much. When we come back, NBC News presidential historian Michael Beschloss is here, and he's going to help us put all of today's bombshells into context. We'll be right back. I first noticed there was ketchup dripping down the wall and there's a shattered porcelain plate on the floor. The valet had articulated that the president was extremely angry at the attorney general's AP interview and had thrown his lunch against the wall, um, which was causing them to have to clean up. So I, I grabbed a towel and started wiping the ketchup off of the wall to help the valet out. And Ms. Hutchinson, was this the only instance that you are aware of where the president threw dishes? It's not. That was one of just of many shocking episodes recounted by former White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson, who also shared how Trump lunged at a Secret Service agent who refused to take him to the Capitol. It was all part of stunning, historic testimony summed up by NBC News presidential historian Michael Betschloss in a now viral tweet saying, quote, never in history have we ever heard credible testimony before Congress this shocking against a president of the United States. And Michael Betschloss joins me now. Michael, it was 
shocking from beginning to end. And it weirdly enough, Trump throwing food was like the least shocking thing. Right. I mean, I can see Nixon throwing food. Right. But <laughs> expound upon your tweet. What, what did you find the most jaw dropping today? Well, that this is this this, uh, this president who is such a hypocrite for five years plus, even before he was president, uh, he said on the on the first of June, for instance, 2020, at the time of the protests in the wake of the deplorable death of George Floyd, he went in the Rose Garden. He said, "I am your law and order president," but that's only under certain circumstances, like. Dictators in history he loves to unleash violence when it is in his interest. You and I remember those rallies of his in the 2016 when he encouraged people in the crowd to rough it up and said to the police, you know, don't be too easy on them. This is what dictators, this is what authoritarians do. So Trump's claim after 6th of January was I may have given a fiery speech at the ellipse, but that was it. And I watched this on television and these people went up to the Capitol on their own and they were expressing their indignation. And that was about it. We now see, thanks to the January 6th House Committee, and we wouldn't have seen it as clearly if it were not for that committee. So, you know, they're noble and they deserve honor. We now see that he was at the center of this plot. Yeah. He was the chief conspirator. He was the one who's going to use the force of the federal government, if necessary, to unleash this violence against Congress and the Capitol and our democracy to try to suspend peaceful transfer of power. Yeah. If I could think of all the bad things a president can do, that's about the worst. Yeah, absolutely. Let me play the, uh, a piece of this. And this was what Glenn Kirshner, former prosecutor Glenn Kirshner, said he found the most shocking. Take a look. Oh, this is one for my, my. I was in the vicinity of a conversation. I remember Pat saying something to the effect of, Mark, we need to do something more. They're literally calling for the vice president to be effing hung. And Mark had responded something to the effect of, you heard him, Pat. He thinks Mike deserves it. He doesn't think they're doing anything wrong. Um, this is actually not the one that uh, Glenn Kirshner found the most shocking. This was the one where essentially he justified that people chanting, hang Mike Pence. Nixon, no president we've had threatened to kill their own vice president. That's pretty shocking. No, Nixon did not like Agnew, but he never went anywhere near that far, nor that, nor did any other president with his vice president. But what Ms. Hutchinson is doing, and she's a very brave woman, you know, honor what she did today. What she is, is she's a firsthand witness who was there in the inner Trump circle. She witnessed and heard many of these things. She saw that Donald Trump said, for instance, one of her quotes that, you know, it was okay to get rid of the magnetometers so that people could bring presumably assault weapons in. He didn't care because he said they're not after me. That was the you know, quote. They might yeah. be using it for other reasons. That's and the quote that Glenn That saw. is yeah. not what any president I know of has ever done. Absolutely. And that's the quote that Glenn Kirchner said was also the most damning um, in terms of Trump's legal prospects, because he said, sure. take down the magnetometers, take down the mags. They're not there to hurt me, which implies right. that they were there to hurt the right people, not him. Right. And his whole point is that he was just sort of this innocent, saintly, passive bystander while this righteous uh, 
uprising uh, went on at the Ellipse and these people marched to the Capitol. It's exactly the opposite. This was an elaborate blueprint. I think we're going to see it involved domestic terrorists like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. It, it involved all sorts of things that probably were criminal. We will see in the next couple of months. This yeah. was an elaborate pro plot initiated by a president of the United States. And walk us through what, I mean, what would it look like? Because we've never seen a president of the United States. And this is very theoretical. We don't know if Donald Trump is going to ever have to pay in court or be charged with crimes. But if he were, there are a lot of people who are concerned about what that looks like, how that plays out in a democracy, putting a president on trial. We know Spiro Agnew did get tried and convicted of crimes, but we've never seen it with a president. Yeah, I disagree with that point of view. In, in the mid-1990s, I talked to Gerald Ford, and I said, I know you pardoned Nixon to heal the country, but why couldn't you at least delay the pardon until maybe he was fingerprinted and he was required to give a statement saying, I am guilty of the following offenses, which Nixon never did. Nixon spent the rest of his life saying, I was railroaded. I didn't deserve to be driven out of office. In later years, he spent a lot of time, interestingly enough, with Donald Trump in New York City and on Trump's plane. Trump once wrote him, I think you're one of the great presidents in history. That was the example that was set by the fact that Nixon was able to get off really scot-free. Yeah. And I mean, and it's interesting that people like Roger Stone, who came from Nixon's orbit and who said in this this you know, classic documentary, Get Me Roger Stone, that all he wanted in the world was to find a better Nixon and Trump was the better Nixon. It feels like a lot of the bad things that have happened in past presidencies played out again um, with Donald Trump. Right. And, you know, and the lesson that Gerald Ford, a fine man, said was that you can be president and you can break the law and you can jeopardize the Constitution and you can come up with plans that could make you an authoritarian in this country, which Nixon at least considered. But your your penalty is you're going to have to go back to a luxurious villa in California. Yeah. And the idea that someone like that could, in theory, run again because he would have to be convicted and have the 14th Amendment used against him to not be able to run Absolutely. again. Absolutely. It's unthinkable, Absolutely. I think, for most of us. Right. Uh, unthinkable. Right. <laughs> Michael Beschloss, it's right. always a pleasure. What a day. What a day. Thank you very much. Really appreciate you. And that is tonight's readout. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com slash win.